Welcome to Gold and Great, telling Asian American stories from the Gold Rush to the Gold Open. This is Josh, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. And I just want to start off today by really saying just a huge thank you to everyone's support for Collab Scramble this past weekend. It ended up being our first ever charity live stream. I think we went five hours. We had 10 plus artists, uh, various performances in music and dance and visual art and played some games. It was a lot of fun, um, and we raised a couple hundred dollars. Uh, we, we still have uh, a grand total pending because we're still collecting donations. And so if you want to continue to donate to Oakland Bloom, again, they are just really doing incredible work in, in training immigrant and refugee chefs, uh, providing entrepreneurship training, uh, providing space for them to uh, create and, and to sell their food, and then also uh, with their Pay It Forward program, uh, offering food to, to unhoused people as well. Um, so really great work. You can continue to donate to them through October 31st at collabsf.org slash donate. 100% of the proceeds goes directly to them. I also just want to remind everyone, November 3rd is coming up. I know you've heard this message blanketed everywhere, but please don't forget to vote. Have a plan. Vote early if you can. Make sure your ballot, your voice is counted. Uh, before we move into today's show, uh, there was a report recently, USA Today, and really startling to me, uh, a study that from, from San Francisco County that 38% of the COVID-19 deaths reported by the Department of Public Health in San Francisco are Asian American residents, the most of any racial group. And, you know, there's a number, there's a number of reasons for the stat with uh, the way that Asian American groups often were shafted uh, early in our history and even still today. Uh, into ethnic enclaves, and that's why you see Chinatown and other little communities develop. Uh, but because of that, and as we're seeing uh, the development of this Asian American identity really play out, uh, which is still very new, only in the past 60-ish years at this point, I guess, we're, we're seeing really a lack of, of resources when it comes to uh, languages and, and outreach but also it's a lack of attention. There are, you know, there's different estimates, but around two dozen ethnic groups that fall under the Asian American umbrella. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, there are a lot of ethnic groups that often get shafted when we think of the idea of Asian American. We, we often think more East Asian and maybe not so much our, our South Asian friends uh, our, our brown Asian friends, Middle East folks, and, you know, plus you have the distress of Western medicine, more people are living together because, you know, they're shafted to certain areas. So all of this, 
And I, I, I feel like, unfortunately, it really ended up being an interesting setup to, to today's conversation. We've got Zara Norbosh. She's the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, recently featured on CNN's United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. And she got to sit down with our friend Long, who is still recovering from his hot Cheetos pho at Collapse Gramble. And if you don't know what that means, good for you. Please don't ask. Uh, But to talk about where Iranians and Middle East folks really fit in within the larger Asian American community. He also got to touch on the impact of social media, Islamophobia, Frasier, how she'd appropriate Persian food, and a whole lot more. So let's go to that convo right now. My name is Zara. I am a feminist Muslim Iranian-American comedian who also identifies as queer. What? What? And I saw one of your top five that you put that as like you're coming out as like to listen to, right? I'm coming out. Yeah. Um, now that we're in 2020, that was a fun time of like going out to open. You can talk to people and touch people and stuff. It's like, how have you been (laughs) these days? I feel like diaspora is all about adapting, you know, that just becomes our go-to. So I really moved quickly in terms of transforming my expectations of work, my expectations of live shows, my expectations of income uh, and income flow. I moved very quickly from live gigs that were originally my go-to. Like, I would say 90% of my income used to come from live performances that I did in the spring. Mm -hmm. Because it's, you know, you've got Asian American History Month, you've got Women's History Month, you've got the Persian New Year month of March, um, and then there's commencement speeches for graduations and um, workshops that kick off right at the end of the um, spring session. So I, I just, I moved quick. Yeah. But the problem with that is like, we, I think we all kind of moved quick for people in the diaspora, but then no one told us about the mental fatigue about it, right? We just kind of wait and see, but it's just like the whole, like, um, the world is in some sort of pandemic or some sort of panic. It's not like we can better ourselves, move up and hustle into a, a, a different situation, right? It's like the, the even playing fields, like everyone has some sort of like, like hold on their life. Totally. And I feel like, um, I'm still every day figuring out the toll. Um, Especially, I think for me as an extrovert, I feel like where people started to get to in like June and July is like where I already was two weeks into the lockdown. (laughs) It was like my extroverted needs are already like, you know, screaming and I need to figure out how to build community from my house and my computer because I like this is too much on me. Yeah, have you seen like a lot of those sports shows? Like they're trying to have um, like TV screens in the audience. Like, does your bedroom have a bunch of like audience people now? Do I have like a certain seat in the house whenever you text me? <laughs> <laughs> I have a no screens thing in my bedroom. Got it. 
Except for when I bring my phone in there and prop it up to watch Frasier. Wow, Frasier. Like, out of all things, you're watching Frasier around this time? It's like the, the very neurotic, like, Kelsey Grammer jokes is, like, holding you on. Well, it's what I, like, fall asleep to sometimes because it's got that smooth jazz in the intro and outro. Got it. Yeah. Because then other shows you watch to go to sleep and it's, like, fun and then you're, like, you know, passing out and then you'll hear, like, dun-dun-dun, you know, and it wakes you up again. But Frasier is just, like easy to go to bed too and these even the jokes like i said the jokes are just very like specific ivy league making fun of maris you never see her yeah. and then like very like oh that's hmm, that's a good tip you should start like a like a cd remember those like mixtape cds back then like sleep sound to kelsey grammar like you should start that that's your new business yeah i, I could just take it from hulu <laughs> become my own distributor i'll be a mogul <laughs> right um one thing i did want to talk to you about is that like what covid kind of did and i've kind of had a side eye kind of skeptic is that like you know unfortunately um covid brought up like a lot of racist to like um target Asian Americans to like stupid things like when I remember it was ridiculous like in February like to avoid COVID people were not going to Chinatown I was like um what are you doing that's like the like I think those Chinese people can't even like don't even have the money to go to China and go back and forth it's like you are the people that travel and stuff and so that was, that was the first reaction um and then it further on into like you know hate crimes and stuff like that too and then lo and behold i see all these like think pieces of you know it gets tiring to see i mean i don't want to dismiss the violence going on but like as someone that like lived through 9-11 and seeing how a lot of like middle um like middle middle eastern people just people that are brown get attacked it's like i see all these think pieces pop up and they always go back to like you know um the Chinese scare, you know, fever and stuff. And then we, we just kind of skip from 1970 to now. So it's like, oh, like the violence is coming back. It's like, but we've always had violence from like 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And then like maybe like, and then there's still cases of like Asian Americans, like um, Desi people, like middle, middle Eastern people getting like harassed and shot by cops. But like our community doesn't stand up for that. Right. And it's like I that's what the tiring thing I get is that the anytime this happens, like we bring up like the historical talks of like Asian America, but we just stop the talk of 1970 and then like we never recalibrate our history and stuff. And so for people that um, don't remember 9-11, like how was your experience back then? Oh, man. Um, yeah. And I guess there's whole generations now that um, were born after 9-11. I mean, I think my my family is a Iranian-American family and is a family where, you know, my mom wore a hijab and so we didn't, quote unquote, pass. Um, We were visibly Muslim, right? Um, Before 9-11, growing up during well, I guess in the aftermath of the Iranian hostage crisis, my mom's headscarf 
told everybody that we were Iranian and therefore enemies of the state, you know, hostage takers. And people still reacted to us that way in really violent ways. Like people used to, with us in the car, drive like they were going to ram my mom's car and then screech off at the last minute holding up the peace sign. People used to drive up past us holding up the peace sign all the time. That was like a thing. Um, and they, they were always stopping my mom in the produce aisle. I don't know why produce is such a popular <laughs> destination for asking random people foreign policy questions, but they always would approach my mom, you know, why do you hate America? Why do your people hate America? In relationship to our Iranianness. After 9-11, for our family, it became very much about Muslimness. Um, my brother at that time had cancer. He had a cancer that was exacerbated by a racist doctor who actively stood in the way of his care. Um, he told my mom, your son has growing pains. He needs to get over it. I know your people. You treat your sons like princes. He's just spoiled. Oof. And he really actively stood in the way of my brother's follow-up appointments. My brother needed to see a specialist. He needed an x-ray. He needed an MRI. My mom had to take him to the emergency room to get those things. And when they needed a specialist to review them, the that primary care doctor scolded my mother for going over his head when he had a talking to from another specialist who said, you're actively standing in the way of this kid's care. I have to, at this point, I would have to testify against you. You need mm -hmm. to sign off on this. He made my parents wait outside with a security guard while he scolded them and wow. said that this was a waste of his time that he had real patience to see. The difference between pre 9-11, post 9-11 is that then post 9-11, when my parents had a lawsuit lined up against him, they had the doctor, the specialist willing to testify. They had a lawyer, a million, multi-million dollar malpractice lawsuit, and the lawyer dropped the case after 9-11. No lawyer would pick it up. And one lawyer leveled with my parents uh, saying, 9-11 just happened. No judge or jury in the world right now is going to look at you with that thing around your head and side with you against an American doctor. Wow. So my experience of post 9-11 was that then it became okay. You know, it became okay to uh, be prejudiced uh, and racist against um, people who were are Muslim. Yeah. And that's, uh, like, at that time, too, like, you know, this is a whole bigger discussion of, like, you know, where was the bigger community for for Muslims? And, like, like did the Asian Americans come out? And, like, at the time, was that even the conversation, like, Muslim people, Iranian people, and Middle Eastern people fit in the diaspora? I know, like, now they've changed the, like, um, it's Asian Pacific Desi now, but, like, back then, was there support from the quote-unquote Asian community. Absolutely. I think even before I knew what was happening, the Japanese-American community showed up. Um, okay. and, and there was a really rich conversation in my circles, even then when I was in college and not really um, a part of any kind of like activism in school. I definitely 
was always hearing these warnings about this is very similar to Japanese internment and how it went down and all the way up until like the election, you know, when the election hit and I was being asked to um, write a piece with George Takei um, mm -hmm. as an op-ed about these comparisons, just as I was having that conversation with folks, George Takei of his own accord went out and um, put out a piece just himself uh, about his experience of internment and how similar it, the time sounded and how concerned he was. And um, he put out a call to action of ways that we need to show up for Muslims um, in this time. Mm -hmm. And I was always, you know, I appreciated that and also felt held by that and also kind of was really looking for advisement in that way. Like, what do we do? Um, yeah. And I think there were so many waves of response. You know, the, the first wave of response was like, we're friendly, we're not scary, you know. Um, and then there was a second wave of response that was like, you know, be unapologetic. Um, and now there's this richer conversation around Muslimness of, um, you know, conversations around how activism and Islamophobia was really foreignizing the religion of Islam and in that way, uh, invisibilizing the black Muslim community um, and the history of Muslimness in the United States um, and Islam as an American identity, uh, holding up Islam as an American identity instead of these conversations of it as like a foreign influx. Yeah, and like um, this conversation gets like more confusing because we have to like now put in religion, ethnicity, and race, right? Race is a American construct of back when white, the term white was to put into the lexicon because when the slaves got free, um, poor people realized like, oh wait, like we're like black people. And then the word white was being used to say like, hey, you white people, black people are taking your jobs and we keep, you know, filling this hatred of like blaming any type of quote-unquote race to you know that's the problem right um and especially now like we're now with black lives matter happening we're reconstructing like a lot of companies um whether it be media or like tech and stuff like that too to talk about the white supremacy and like that's gonna that's been having a big impact with a lot of, of you know every system I think one of the um, this one company or it's a non-profit they mentioned like they were pol apologizing for actually I should say like most recent thing right now the LA Times right they've um, did you see that no the LA Times so the LA Times yesterday as I'm as we're recording this on Sunday they put this op-ed piece. They had like ten piece, I think seven to ten pieces, and they're saying they're. Oh, is this the one you sent me? The... No, no, no. I said you. I didn't. That was something else. That's more oh, like a fluffy stuff. Like, oh, this is great. I mean, which is still necessary, <laughs> but like the most recent thing that happened was the L.A. Times um, admitted their mistakes of of having racial history, racist mm -hmm. history, and so they just talked about like how they were. Um, they have seven different pieces. Um, 
they talked about how they were um, talking about Hispanic people, that how they were talking about black people, and how they don't have people of color reporting these things and stuff. And they actually had this whole series starting. And then even the owner, who's, um, I think he's Japanese? He's Asian, and he bought the newspaper in 2018. And he wrote, you know, like, we have a racist history upon it. And they're, you know, they're digging through their, you know, sins of trying to undo the things. Like, National Geographic did it in 2018. But, like, now it seems like there's a big push on that. Um, but, like, right now there seems to be a re-understanding of, like, especially for Asian American community, because, quote-unquote, we're, we're always seeing this monolith of, like, being the model minority, you know, stuff like that too and now i think it's interesting where because of covid we're having to face ourselves and look at ourselves like how did we support um this assimilation and white supremacy yeah um, definitely that i mean those monoliths man what a pain in the ass right <laughs> such a pain in the ass and the messaging like the, the way they weaponize messaging in this establishment i mean and the fear-mongering i was just thinking about like um, the hate speech that goes out and the the propaganda machines that are out there just pummeling us, you know? And I was looking at what is, what is the messaging around whiteness that's being had right now? Because I really feel like there's this um, decided um, tactic on the part of this administration to target various communities and pummel them with any means of destabilizing distraction possible from like the bomb threats against synagogues to, um, you know, uh, calling it the Chinese virus to um, fear tactics against Islam and the Muslim ban to, to um, threats against the undocumented community of folks and, and detention and illegal detainment. Um, everybody's got so much shit to worry about, you know, and of course, murder police um, and, yeah. and the administration's constant attempts to um, demonize Black Lives Matter. And then I was like, so what's going on with whiteness? And everything I look at in terms of whiteness is to like, be afraid of the violence of the white supremacist establishment. Like everything is like from Dylan Roof to, um, you know, white guys in their 20s with assault rifles at movie theaters. Like it's there. There's no real. Um, charges levied against them. There's no recourse. There's no conversation that follows up on like whiteness and the threats of whiteness it all just kind of gets lumped together as a conversation on racism that's different than the way it gets levied against us in media yeah so it's really interesting that the la times is doing their own expose <laughs> on themselves yeah right? like, i mean maybe it's just they're sitting around I was like what do we need to do it's like racism is like like hot topic we have a bunch of it yeah let's cover that right yeah i mean i feel like if we were in an Obama kind of presidency uh, or even just a democratic one um, and not an authoritarian fascist one, 
this would be such an amazing time. Everybody's really doing this like audits, you know, these self audits of their racism, of um, racist conditioning, um, you know, like that old Angela Davis quote of like, it's a system of levers and pulleys, you know, it's not just all up to us and our willpower. Like we have to look at the ways that we're conditioned to think these ways and it's on default and in our back brain. But because we've got a scary regime, you know, then now it's a conversation on civil war. Yeah. Yeah, and also, like, there's arguments for against this, like, are we noticing now because, like, the interesting thing about COVID is that, personally, I feel it, it like, sparked once the NBA, like, um, tested, they tested the Utah Jazz and someone got positive and they canceled that. And then we realized, oh, on a biggest scale like NBA, they can notice and they're canceling. And then now, like, sports are going on and these celebrities and athletes are still kind of, like, talking about it. And it's like, you know, there's arguments, is that itself forcing people to recognize it? Because before, I mean, Kaepernick kneeled and then we changed the conversation to something ridiculous of, like, disrespecting the fact. Oh. Or people can just ignore it, right? Mm -hmm. So now it's just like, we don't have that much media. We can only play Animal Crossing so much, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then so it's just like, like now it's like, are we facing it because we have nothing else to look at? You mean like we have nothing else to look at? Like, what do you mean? Like in terms of distractions or? Yeah. I mean, it's just so hard to like, I feel like, you know, before pandemic, like you can focus on one thing and not have it like there's so many ways to distract yourself and just like lose yourself right but like when you're now it's like you're forced to be home your job situation is different like radically different and then the news is like there's just not many distractions of like book releases or right you know music coming out it's just like are we forced to kind of look at ourselves in the mirror and also more angry right are yes we can be more empathetic yes oh my god speaking of things that suck I just watched Social Dilemma, mm -hmm. the documentary on Netflix. Have you seen it? No, I ain't watching that. No, <laughs> I don't want to watch that. Oh, you got to watch it, man. I'll tell really? you. Really? Yeah. Is it that good? Yeah. Well, it's not that it's, like, that good. I mean, because it has its problems, absolutely. But I do feel like, I mean, number one, I know that there's things in there that a lot of us already know, but there's a lot of folks who don't know that and a lot of folks who have always called us conspiracy theorists for saying it. You know what I mean? About yeah. about how meticulously social media is curated and how it is really purposeful and that it is a white supremacist curation and it's not just us, <laughs> you know, thinking yeah. that. Like, the documentary sort of covers that and... I feel like it at least builds a, I don't know, like a bar for conversation on social media. You know, like now I find myself telling folks like, you need to just watch that documentary because like I can't have a conversation with somebody who doesn't know that that's a thing. You know what I mean? And thinks yeah. that it's like based off their likes and, you know, favorites and things like that. And it's like, no, it's not actually up to you. Yeah. Um. Some of the stuff in it that is, like, really messed up is they say that there's no way for social media um, and Google searches to be on top of truth, which is like, what? Mm. Yes, there is. <laughs> yes, there is. That's yeah. ridiculous. 
because there's something called the scientific method, which is an algorithm in and of itself. Yeah. You can absolutely fact check, and especially if you're a Google database, you absolutely have that capability. But if you don't have VCs and people at the top who are invested in the search for truth, then yeah, that's gonna be hard. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, do, do you watch Watchmen? Do yeah, you the first one, or do you know? I feel like there's enough Rorschachs in the world to like to go crazy and just try to get the truth out. Like, I have this joke when people say, like, robots are going to take over. It's like, there's no way robots can take over because our Wi-Fi is not that strong enough. <laughs> well, there's another... Like, Wi-Fi is so terrible, right? Wi-Fi is so terrible, I can just unplug it. Or, like, the range that like, can never reach. Like, we can't even get, like, clean Zoom calls, let alone a robot's going to have a full 100% connection to kill me. It's like, I think I can just run away in a blind spot. It'll just, like, drown itself, right? Well, and the conversation on robots taking over is, like, actually rooted in racism because um, it there's a connection to that in slavery um, because like there's this way that humanity or humanity, there's this way that the establishment kind of looks at um, the white establishment looks at robots as like service, you know? And what was interesting in social dilemma is one of the things that they were saying is the people that they interviewed was that it's gotten away from us now that the, this AI makes itself smarter and basically we, we've got a Skynet situation, folks. It's a Skynet situation. <laughs> but even yeah. even that is frustrating because it's like, that's just not true. Like th in all the same ways that we monitor insider trading, we're, ca yeah. we're absolutely capable of preventing social media outlets from selling our data, data mining and selling it to arms dealers. Like that's, that, that is not at all impossible, but it is if the people who are in charge are the people who are doing it. Yes, then that's not possible. Yeah. And also, too, like human interests will always foil, right? It's like, they're just, it just has, just put in one prostitute and some cocaine, and then things can get messy, right? Like the power of like the ridiculousness of humans, like, it's not the robots, it's just like we're going to destroy us. Like, there's always some sort of weird out of control situation like you know amazon right like he uses like he, alexa to have an affair on his wife right really i didn't know that no because it was interesting that he was sending texts to his mistress who was jeff, jeff bezos the, yeah <laughs> jeff and bezos so, was using so, alexa so i joke because if you read the text they're so weird and dry it's like like i remember this one text it was like i like you a lot i want to have lunch with you like, it was not sexy at all. I was like, my God, like, like, unless he's so rich, he can just text random things and get anyone because he's that rich. Or it's like, or somehow he's making some algorithm for these texts. They're not Wait, sexy Wait, you have to all. give me some like, context because I don't know anything about this. So he got caught, like, they found, like, texts that he was texting his, like, um, mistress, right? And so they leaked out those texts. <laughs> and so usually, like... When you're going to have an affair, like, you're usually, like, raunchy and stuff. But what I, that's what I think. I never had an affair before. But, like, what I've seen in movies, and, like, when you read this text, they're like, hello, I like you a lot. I want to have lunch with you. I love you. And I was just like, it was so weird. I mean, it's just weird to me to even think of Bezos as having a mistress because I feel like when it's somebody on his kind of level, 
to me, I'm like, doesn't he just then own everybody in his immediate circle? Because, like, I don't, I can't imagine him having, like, a friend. You know what I mean? If I was, like, yeah. Bezos's friend, I would know that he still has enough money to kill me, cover up the murder, cover up anybody who would write about the murder, cover up anybody who would write about the people who disappeared who would write about the murder, and, like, still be fine. Right? You'd think so. But somehow, like, his, like, PG text, like, I don't know why I'm so caught up, like, why it's not scandalous enough for me. But, like, it's just, like, (laughs) he got caught. And so, like, I think that's the thing that people don't understand, like, how... That's so random. You can get... The randomness of the world can just bring down certain things, you know? So, veering off the conversation, um, (laughs) you know that um, there was a podcast, uh, Freakonomics, that did a report on the difference between Twitter and Facebook. Mm. And this was between Ferguson and the ACL Bucket Challenge. Okay. Do you remember that? Yeah. ALS, sorry, ALS Bucket Challenge. And so they were able to kind of report saying that Facebook was changing the algorithm that the ALS um, challenge was more popular, something that you would like, so it would actually pump that into your feed more. When Ferguson was happening, the algorithm was not showing you that at all. Surprise. And so, but a lot of, but since they call it black Twitter and a lot of like uh, POCs are on Twitter, Twitter doesn't have an algorithm. If you post, it'll just show. They changed it now, but you can kind of go back and forth. Like, it'll, I think now you, it'll assume what you like and show you what you like most, but you can turn that off. Hmm. And so Twitter was actually talking about Ferguson more, hmm. and Facebook wasn't. And so even then there, and this is Freakonomics podcast, it's just a, you know, economics podcast, not even about race, and they're saying, like, yeah, like, even this algorithm here, like, one side is getting a certain news because, you know... Yeah, it's all curated. There's no algorithm... Yeah, it's all curated. So it's just interesting now of, like, how we're getting our news. Okay, so Um, Social Dilemma said that, um, and I wish I could remember the names of the commentators in Social Dilemma. It was, like, a guy who worked on Gmail um, and I want to say a guy who was one of the founders of Instagram, but I really can't remember. They were saying that, Facebook was responsible for civil war in the Philippines. Really? Yeah, and their claim was that the same thing is happening in the United States via Facebook and that we're going to see civil war within the next three months. Huh. And then this is where, like, they're getting into trouble now because someone leaked internally of... What's his name? Um... Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. I don't know why I can remember his name. But Mark Zuckerberg's, like, memos leaked that he wasn't going to take certain things off. He's trying to save metal for money. Did you see that? Like, I think The Verge reported about that. Reported that he was trying to... What? He was just... They're reporting that he just wanted to stay in the middle. That there are certain news things that he didn't want to delete because... (laughs) Just for monetary reasons. Like, no, we got to stay in the middle. Like, it's crazy, right? It's like how we have... (laughs) <laughs> these outliers now we're bringing it into the median right so if like i don't even know math that well i'm asian i don't even know math that well but i well, know it, but it, statistics it, is what he was saying that he fiscally was making a choice not to regulate oh sorry i'll say that again is what he was saying that fiscally he was making a choice not to regulate white supremacists on facebook and fake news because 
money? I mean, he wouldn't say it like that, but he was like, oh, you know, we, we have to stay in the middle. And so, blah, blah, blah. Like, we, like, we can't pick and choose and stuff like that. He's, I mean, he finds his ways oh, to, like, fuck that say, guy. But, like, but he won't, like. The middle, again, my ass. The yeah. middle? Like, there's a middle. I mean, that's hilarious. Number one, why does he get to decide what the middle is? Right? Num- yeah. Number two, uh, I think that if that is how stuff worked, why do we even have prisons? I mean, in that case, aren't we just all in the middle of actions taken and choices made? And we're just trying to come to the center on <laughs> what's the best course of action? You murdered her. She's mad at you for that murder. And so we're just trying to stay here in the middle <laughs> right? And, and, and not take sides. I mean, give me a break, man. <laughs> this is why um, I'm glad that I taught kindergarten for 10 years is because I have a real solid bullshit meter. And also, you know how to explain things to a 10-year-old, which some people have to be told like a 10-year-old, right? Did you just say 10-year-old? Kindergarten is five. That's hilarious. Oh, shit. Did I say 10? <laughs> Wait, no, no, shit, I just aired out my stuff. I was in kindergarten since 10, sorry. <laughs> Who are these kindergartners you're working Anyways, with? Anyways, moving on. Um, so the other question I kind of want to have uh, is, like, the community and, like, I think the young generation, like, especially your collaborations, um, demographics, like, 20, like, college to maybe, like, 25, and they're in a different world of, like, cancel culture, like, mm-hmm. really making sure that, like, we're using proper pronouns and stuff. And then, like, the word, it's Asian Pacific Desi Americans. And that, and then, but then that's not national. There's, like, all these, like, schools are trying to, like, change those things. And the most recent thing I sent, I think I sent you that, like, colleges are trying to put um, North African, Southwest Asian as their own, like, check mark on like their schooling because the more that people identify themselves they can get the resources of um properly for them so like for example like you know if there's enough vietnamese people on these certain censuses that we can have some of these translations in vietnamese right um and for me i didn't grow up with these kind of like things of really identifying because yeah these options right like um with that, like, how do you feel that's going to, ch- like, where do you feel on the spectrum? Like, should, you know, um, Iranian people be now in this, like, thing of Southwest or Southwest Asians, so they still be, like, Middle East, etc.? Well, first it's Iranian. What did I say? Iranian is the George H. Bush version we like Iranian. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I grew up with a Fresno education, so I, was, I grew up with Bush pronunciations. Well, yeah. okay. I think when it comes to Iranians, it's a really fascinating intersection of things. Like, Iranians identify as white um, for a couple reasons. One, the, the historical identification with Aryans. Um, I think there's also a relationship to Hitler and railroads and deal making between the Shah and Hitler um, to take the railroads from Russia. Uh, Don't quote me on that, but do use it as a starting place for your own research. 
Um, and then there's also uh, the anti, um, what is it, the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, where um, it was important, quote unquote, for Iranians and uh, I think a couple others to identify as white so that they weren't a part of the Chinese Exclusion Act as a country in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, the Middle East has always been like a weird um, categorization because it, it, I mean, it always just felt like this is who has oil, you know, and then the Middle East kept growing. Um, and I used to joke about how, you know, the, the Middle East just keeps expanding, you know, it, like pretty soon it's going to include parts of Europe, Mexico, Canada, you know, and like, sure enough, this administration has like done so much fear mongering with its neighbors. It's ridiculous. Um, I categorize myself as West Asian uh-huh. because I miss how we used to talk about continents Yeah, and how they existed <laughs> <laughs> and we're West in Asia. We're West Asian. Um, and you know, like, yeah, Saudi Arabia's North African, you know, like, um, the Middle East has just always been a very weird classification for me because it, it, it always really felt like a construct of conversations on oil specifically. Yeah. But and I always, like... I always get left out when it comes to conversations on Asianness, when it comes to conversations on South Asianness, Iranians are not South Asian, um, we don't, we're not there on the map, uh, you know, when it comes to classifications of brown, Iranians want to be classified as white because of racism. So it's, it's a funky space. Right? Because it's unfair because, like, East Asian people get boba. And, like, you're left with oil. Come on. Like, can't we have, like, something <laughs> fun? Like, boba? Why do we have the complicated oil and stuff like that? Like, you know, it's like... For me, it's like, yes, it's fun, but then also Vietnam War. It's like, oh, come on. You guys got you guys got the cool stuff. Sony PlayStation for Japanese, I stereotype, and like, you know, like, Hello Kitty. We got left with this, you know? Well, when I was a kid growing up, all my, like, Persian community that I was around used to instruct me to say, like, if anybody asks if you're from the Middle East, you say no. You know, tell them you're Asian or just tell them you're Italian. And if they yeah. ask where Iran is, just say it's a province of Italy and Asia. Oh, gosh. So you had to, like, how long did you have to do that? Or did you go with her? You said, nah, I'm not doing that. I think, I think it was, like, in sixth grade that I was, like, where is Iran? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was probably kept away from you so long, right? You're, like, wait, where am where, I? Like, where um... is Iran? Because my parents' tactic on this stuff was to tell us nothing. You know, they, they were really, like careful not to talk to us about like politics and i don't know if actually that was even intentional on their part i think that they just were working their asses off they were just busy they were busy like you know working parents uh both my parents worked both my parents were in school um and so then when teachers would ask me you know like uh what do your parents think of george bush what do your parents think of the iran iraq war then i said i don't know because i didn't know yeah and, yeah, and Iran is a province of Italy and Asia, and that's all I had. Yeah. If somehow 
like I talked to the board of this fictitious Asian Pacific History Month guy or woman, and like I made I spearheaded you as like the Southwest. Which food would you pick as like the the capitalist like food that eater.com is always going to write about? You mean like for Iranians? Yeah. Like what would be our food for everybody to like appropriate and hipsterize and charge 20 bucks for? Yeah. What what, what food would you pick? Ooh, that's a tough one. And this is like so much power to have on behalf of all Persians. I really dig this. Let me see. I mean, we've got Tadik. Tadik is pretty Mm. awesome. If you saw salt, fat, acid, heat with Samin Nosrat, Persian, uh, she showed us Tadik. It's like the, the crispy rice. Um, mm-hmm. but then we also have like Badamjoon, the eggplant, uh, dish that is a dip and that's delicious. Uh, and then, oh, you know what I would do? I would just start. Okay. So it's a big thing for Iranians. Like we eat onions, like they're apples. Huh? And it's probably why I have horrible acid reflux, but <laughs> <laughs> Probably did not help my esophagus. But yeah, like we'll eat. You know how there's like larb where you'll put like ground beef in a lettuce cup? Yeah. So we have like, we'll do that with like onion slices. Okay. So I think I would want to like just push that into the world. Just everybody crunching on onions. I mean, in a way you could like, that reminds me of a... Where was I? TGIS, they take the whole, like, onion and just, like, deep fry it. So that's the way to, like, appropriate it, right? And that's how you Oh, man, that is what they would do. It would just turn into onion rings. It would be, like, Persian onion rings. It'd be, like, yeah, it'd be, like, Persian onion slices. See, there's always a way to mess it up, so. (laughs) You really gotta think this through. Yeah, that's it. You know, and I forgot that, like... I forgot that the shitty thing about colonialism is that they're not even going to represent your stuff, right? You know what I mean? They're going to, like, take it and deep fry it and add cream cheese to it and then say it's yours. Yeah. You know, like California rolls and shit like that. I think that's why they, like, somehow this, like, fictitious committee, I'm making this up as of now, like, they picked boba. Like, you can't deep fry boba. I'm just, like, waiting for that to happen now. I, I mean, they've... At the closest they've gone, like, they've put boba on, like, french fries, and that got vetoed. But I feel like the the, the organization of boba did it really well of, like, fitting right in the middle of, like, you can't appropriate it too much, but then it still fits, like, safely, right? I'm just really stoked that we've got Persian onion rings now out of this conversation. <laughs> I feel like this is a major contribution. I know we should just develop that. <laughs> what, what, what would your other top two or other two be of p- picking this like capitalist like way to pivot, not talk associating Middle East to oil? You're gonna pick this one food. We're gonna use that as a stereotype. Okay, don't be mad at me because you're asking Zara. So yeah, I get to pick the Zara foods. Yes, I mean in this, like again, this is this is where unregulated power comes from of like somehow social media this spawns and then you we call it the zara cake or whatever yeah we're starting it right now yes i'm into it i mean i feel like most persians would be like you know badem jun and like uh you know korma sabzi tadik but i'm gonna say uh onions radishes and uh 
I'm going to go with pickles in a can. Canned pickles. Okay, so for the radishes, like, you have to associate it back to Animal Farm because they had turnips in there, right? Like, some sort of, like, release. It's, like, so you have to release, like, you have to talk to Nintendo. You have to release, like, a certain radish that's, like, more expensive to sell. You know the whole ecosystem of Animal Crossing with the turnips? Teach me. So, they, in, (laughs) in Animal Crossing, they use turnips as a form of currency. Nice. So I think that word turnip in Japanese means like something uh-huh. of like stocks or something. Yeah, stock. There you go. Stock. Like the little term stock. So it's a stock uh, market. Mm-hmm. So a certain day, like everyone has their own house. Like there's a certain price that they can sell. It's like high or low. Mm. And so somehow the people have built this like like ecosystem of like if there's high selling turnips, they go to a certain house. Oh. Now, if you talk to Nintendo, have a your Zara like radish, mm. and that's a great marketing strategy right there. Boom. Boom. Yes. And what was the other one you said? Canned soggy pickles. Huh. They're Where, so where's good. the history of that? I have no idea. They just they're these pickles that come in a can that you get at the Persian market. And they're like soggy and salty, and they're so good. I crave like. What's the context? Them. Do you, Do you eat it in summertime, wintertime? Do you eat it, drink it with always. the syringer? Always. Always. It's a twenty four seven thing. Cause like Persian food is like uh, really light and uh, has a lot of like really kind of like basil-y aromatic flavors. Got it. You know, it's very Mediterranean because we're a province of Italy. <laughs> and it's like, uh, like mint is really popular. Tarragon is really popular. So like with any Persian dish, you would put a huge stack of herbs of like basil, tarragon, um, mint. And then you would also have a bunch of radishes that you would like cut up into like bloom shapes, like flower shapes. Mm-hmm. And then you would have a whole plate of like just raw sliced white onions along with a side of pickles and what we call torshi, which is kind of like kimchi, except instead of cabbage, it's like a medley of vegetables. Got it. And it's not spicy. I, I guess like people always expect Persian food to be spicy because like the Southwest connection or Southwest yeah. because of the South Asian connection. Um, but and then they'll have Persian food and complain that it's bland. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. So, so is this more of a snack or a food? Because I'm trying to think, like, if you build, like, a Chipotle version of build your own can, a bowl, or something like that, that's how you market it, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the fun thing is that, like, in colonialism, our garnishes end up, like, being the plate. Got it. Okay. So, these, I mean, these are really garnishes. And mm. then... So then we would, like, deep fry them, add cream cheese, and it would be the meal. Mm. With the side of, uh... What's a drink? What's a good Persian drink we can just pair it with? Oh, my God. My favorite Persian drink is called Dool. Mm-hmm. It's spelled D-O-O-G-H, and it's that k sound. Can you do it? K, k, k. K? That? K, k, k. G. G. There you no, go. No, k. G? No, g- it's deeper. What? 
Like it's like here. It's not up here. It's like in your throat, middle of your throat. Not in the belly though. Like almost like you're puking, but you don't. You're just talking. Yeah, there you go. You got it. There you go. Okay, there's a little bounce in there. Got it. You got to hit that throat a little bit. Yep. Okay, so it's dual. Dual. Yes. Nice. Nicely done. And it's okay. a it's a yogurt drink. It's a salty, minty, seltzery yogurt drink. Huh. Okay. You know what? Good way to appropriate that. You like. <laughs> you have to team up. <laughs> you have to. You know. This is how it works. Okay. We've All got right. from like, so, like we gotta look how they capitalize on ranch dressing. It's almost okay. the same. Right, so we have to get some sort of way. Oh like, yeah, so then you would take pizza. you would take ranch dressing, and you'd mix it with a uh, club soda. Mhm. And there you go. There we go. Yeah. Maybe so maybe throw like... some deep fried boba in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So like that would like, and then sell Doritos because they have the cool ranch. What if they had their own like dual ranch? Oh, that'd be delicious, actually. Right. I would eat the shit okay. out of that. Okay, I think after COVID, we're going to solve this whole issue with these appropriated foods. Dual, like, Doritos Dual Ranch. Dual Ranch, right? Dual. Dual Ranch. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so good. The Double D. Doritos Double Ds, Dual. yes. Double Duels. Okay, thank you very much. That was a fun conversation. I, <laughs> I hope that, you know, through these foods, we're going to solve... Um, racism and you know and maybe so. there's a cure in this yeah we are i think so you know? yeah and then we become our own monsters of capitalists like appropriating people and then we're gonna be canceled but you know that's that's a cycle of life right that is the cycle of life cycle of life like you know i think jesus was the first person invented canceling because <laughs> the plagues because he like he got mad he's like screw you guys firstborn canceled plague Ha <laughs> But I mean, person, doesn't right? that go back to like Adam and Eve? Like, wasn't didn't Eve? Wasn't she like, Adam? I'm gonna cancel you if you don't like eat from this apple, you know? And then right? God was like, "You're both canceled." I can't believe you did that. Yeah, like this. Yeah, he like the snake canceled, right? Yeah. So like, canceling goes so far away. It's just a circle of life. So is the snake capitalism? Huh. I think. No, he's a social justice warrior. He's worse. <laughs> he's a snowflake social justice warrior. <laughs> that is going to do it for us today. That was Long Vo, and you can follow Zara at Zara Comedy, Z-A-H-R-A Comedy, on Facebook, Twitter, and Insta. And don't forget, you can continue to donate to Oakland Bloom, through October 31st, 100% of the proceeds at collabsf.org slash donate. Do you have a story in your circle of friends or community that explores how family, cultural, and personal histories are shaping artistry and identity? How are you going back where you came from? You can send questions, comments, and episode ideas our way to goldandgreat at collaboration.org. I say it every week, collaboration is spelled with a K. This episode was mixed and edited by Francis David Bustos. Our associate producer is Michelle Abiera. Our supervising producer is Long Vo. And our executive producer is Josh Coe. 
Our beautiful theme song was composed by Robert Guh, and you can learn more about Bobby's work at bobbygemusic.com. I'm Josh, and we'll see you soon with more stories of the Golden Great. Thanks for listening.